Giants bring pressure. Stafford finds space to scan. And throw to the end zone. Caught again. Megatron again. Cuts down Detroit. Matt Stafford is You know, Don, it isn't all that often that something that happens on the podcast causes me to lose a little bit of sleep. But I have to admit that my mistake during the Trey Wingo interview last week is one that's going to bother me for quite a while. What mistake is that? Well, I I had a, I asked him a question about uh, – I wanted to ask him a question about Tony Dungy and how you know he had spoke out about Michael Sam. Okay. And uh, I had a little bit of note. I had some notes written down, so I wouldn't forget some things I wanted to ask him. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, uh, Michael Sam slash Tony Dungy, and then underneath it I had uh, Herm Edwards written down because I wanted to ask him how he might have handled it if someone he worked so closely with, like Herm Edwards, would have found himself in that position. Okay. And when I asked the initial question, I said Herm Edwards instead of Tony Dungy. Because instead of just asking the question of inst- question instinctively, I asked it based on notes and I kind of like <laughs> reversed the guys. I reversed it. And it was embarrassing because at the end of the question, he goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, well, that's weird. You know, I'm thinking to myself, why doesn't he know? Like, that was everywhere. <laughs> but uh, he was really cool about it because. We laughed at you know I was a little self-deprecating and laughed it off then and um, he retweeted us. It was one of those things where you look at your phone and like all of a sudden we have 17 new followers. Like what the hell happened? Okay. And it's like oh well, we got a retweet from Wingo who has 700 and you know 60,000 followers. And the first thing I thought it was oh great 17 new people are gonna listen for the first time. I think <laughs> I'm a dickhead. <laughs> but it, he tweeted me something about how you know that happens all the time that he had called Schefter by the wrong name just like a couple days before. And I was thinking, yeah, but you have so much equity built into your reputation. Right. It's okay for you to make that mistake and maybe a little bit more damning. But if for some reason you listened last time or for the first time last week, heard that atrocious error on my part and still listened this time, thank you and welcome to Season (laughs) 4, Episode 25 of the Sportscasters. September 9th, 2014, a very festive, happy day in our beloved Buffalo, New York. News came down today that the Buffalo Bills have been purchased by the Sabres owner, Terry Pagula, and we're going to talk about that uh, during three things. And we're also going to talk with Sal Capaccio, a local sports. We've had uh, WGR is the local sports radio station here in Buffalo, and we've had Mike Shope from the station on before. Uh, Sal's there as well. He's going to come on today. He did a great job, I thought, today, really capturing the essence of what this was all about uh, in Buffalo. Yeah, I don't think... Maybe more than anybody on that station. I think he's the least shy about being a fan. And I like that. I want to talk to him about that. We're not shy about who we're fans of. We're in a different position than he is, obviously. But I've always liked that because if you're not a fan, you come off as a curmudgeon. It just ha- if you don't show the fan side to this, I I just don't like you as much usually. Well, 
Yeah, um, I don't mind a guy being objective. Like sometimes you, you can you, be an objective sure, fan. I, sure, that's the thing I've always balked at is that they somehow have to be mutually exclusive. Right, right. And I, but I think that's what most people think when they hear like, "Oh, this guy's a fan," you know, like. Uh, but yeah, I always get kind of turned off when like a reporter's like. I think Jim Rome kind of does this. He's like, I'm not, I'm not a fan yeah, of and, teams. I'm a fan of players. I'm a fan of the league. And that's whatever. absurd for someone like him. Now, if you're a, a beat writer, like someone who has to report facts and things like that, and you want to separate yourself, that makes more sense. Someone who's just, you know, casually discussing things with people and, you know, on the radio or on different, it just, it, it, you lose me a little bit if you're not that way. But Sal's, I think, I think it, admitting you're a fan too helps, uh, I'm sure there's times on here I've been way overly optimistic or uh, whatever. Uh, I've always been an apologist for, like, Sabres moves. And it helps, I think, people know that I am a fan. So I might be way off base or I might be trying to be optimistic because I'm a fan. But you know what? I think people like that about us, too. When we were talking about the return to pick four today and how we were going to do it, I mentioned that I think people want to know what we think about our teams. And I do believe that, that people uh, find us credible when we talk about our teams and they want to hear what we say about it, which is why we're going to pick our team's games every week. But So Sal Capaccio is going to join us. Also, Jane Levy, who is making her sixth appearance today. It's something I'm pretty proud of because yeah. uh, she isn't everywhere. You know, She's right. around, but she's not everywhere. Uh, she's talking to me from her home in Cape Cod today. You know, she had spent the day welding. You know, she's not exactly working right that second, but she took the time out to spend 30 minutes to talk to me about Derek Jeter and Mickey Mantle and the Ray Rice thing. And it's a great interview, and I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. So this is what we got today. We're going to do three things. We're going to talk to Jane. We're going to do a short five on fantasy. I want to talk about the listener league and some overreaction, underreaction type of things. Then we're going to interview Sal, and then we're going to finish with the return of pick four. We'll tell you more about that when we get to it. But for now, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Now let's move on to other business. All right, three things. I think this is another thing Don and I talked about before the show started is what are we going to do now that the NFL started? And we've been really trying hard the last couple years to figure out what we do. And we've gotten bogged down sometimes in talking too much about last week's games when it's probably too late or too much about next week's games when – it just, it just takes up too much time, and we don't really need it. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do every week our first thing and three things is going to be the most important NFL stories. And it might be about a game coming sure. up, but it might not be. Right. And then we'll have two other things that will be separate. And then we'll talk more about the games during pick four. But the number one thing we mentioned a little bit off the top is uh, it's official that the Bills will have a second owner. That owner is Terry Pagula. This is what you call the best case scenario for yeah, the city absolutely. of Buffalo. Uh, their place, which has maybe been slightly in doubt for about 20 years now, mm-hmm. is is cemented. The reported price is about 1.4 billion, uh, which is a great price for one of the 
probably least valuable franchises in the league. I can't imagine what the Cowboys would sell for. Yeah, they I have get no idea. $1.4 billion for the Bills. No idea. I wonder if it's the type of scenario where there's only 32. Is it 30 or 32? Why do I not know that? 32 of these teams in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about like every time a quarterback that's in the top half of the league comes up for a contract, he's probably going to be the highest paid. I wonder if that's just going to be how this works, too. Probably like, every time a team is sold, it'll it's be the be, next highest. Yeah, because I think the Browns, the new Browns, 1.2, something like that, 1.1. Right around one. Or yeah, one, yeah. Something like that. So, But it's a great day for Buffalo. The Bills are stable. They're not going to go to Toronto. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back, but this is always the outcome I expected. I think I've said several times in this show. One, that they weren't going to move to Toronto. If they were going to move, no, right. it would be somewhere else. Yeah, and the whole time this has gone on, there has been a Toronto group interested, uh, headed by Bon Jovi. But at every turn, it seemed like there was someone ready quickly to poke a hole in what they are doing. Like uh, They were looking at sites for a stadium, which would like violated one of the rules. Uh, right. They just they didn't ever seem like a realistic And outcome. I think that's another part of this, is Ralph Wilson really is going to come off as a, a real hero in all of this based on the provisions that he instructed the trust to operate under when they found a new owner, I think is a big reason why it was able to stay here. Yeah, Tim Graham, a Buffalo reporter. Who we've uh, had on. Yeah, who we've times. had on. He worked at ESPN. Uh, he's back with the Buffalo News now. But uh, he's been great through this whole thing, and that's one of the things he tweeted that when it comes out, like maybe he just can't talk about it yet, but he said that Ralph Wilson's legacy is going to – look even better like th- mm-hmm. the steps he took to make sure this happened uh are gonna make people love him even more um i i think it's phenomenal for me i was kind of in your shoes where i wasn't one to worry about the team moving i'm sure there there's some bills fans that just exhaled today because they were worried but for me it's just the absolute best case scenario it's the fact that i don't have to worry about my team leaving and they have the best owner I could possibly. I couldn't write down a better owner for them to have. Uh, I went and I talked about this on the air. I went to a free Sabres scrimmage and just walked around downtown and looked at the effect that Terry Pagula had on the area around the Sabres stadium. Uh, and it's awesome. So this guy cares. He wants to be here. He wants to improve the area. And it, it's easy to get excited about that as a Buffalonian. Yeah, and I think people like Dante Whitner, you know, <laughs> you know, fuck off, Dante Whitner. Oh man! And uh, the other guy, I was trying to find the his name. Dolphins reporter. Yeah, the like Dolphins that. reporter who yeah. dropped uh, Omar Kelly, who had, who tweeted that he drops his mic. He said he said enjoy your team while it lasts or something. Drops mic. Right. Like he's such a hero. Yeah, fuck you too, Omar Kelly. You know, go to hell. Um, you know, I don't love the Bills, but I love Buffalo. And yep. uh, I never wanted to see the team leave because I knew it would have been bad for the city that I love. And I'm glad that it's here. And uh, I'm glad that things like Toronto are gone. And, and you know, the Bills leaving would have made our city look bad. It would have made people, the things that people say about our city would have given them uh, some, some credibility. And it feels good to know that we're an NFL city. And the proof of that is uh, we have an NFL team that's, more yeah, stable I, than just as stable as the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, right I, th- I know the timing is related to the passing of Ralph Wilson and nothing else, but I, I think it's also indicative of it's it's a cool indicator of how the city's in an upswing, and you have to be here to know it because otherwise you just think it's covered in snow all the time. But the city's in an upswing, and this just it's an exclamation point on that. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about, which 
obviously it's dominated the headlines the last 24 hours. Yeah. And we had Phil Taylor on to talk about it before the break, and he's going to have another story on the cover of SI this week about Ray Rice. And, you know, basically there's now a video uh, that precedes the one that we had originally seen of him dragging the lifeless body of his wife out of the elevator. Right. We now, we now know why she was lifeless. And the number one thing is it's just it looks so bad for the NFL. Just – yeah, uh, that, they claim they didn't see it. Dead spit. Yeah, they claim th- they stick to that. They're right, going to go down in a blaze of glory on that. I, I think it was Deadspin has like a series of tweets from when it first came out, and it made it sound like the NFL was saying, "Look, there's a reason we only gave it two games, and if you knew what we knew, you might agree." And now it's backpedaling, like we didn't know this. Right? You know what I mean? So. I think Roger Goodell comes off looking really, really bad here. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you. Does he have any credibility as the commissioner or the face of this league anymore? I mean, it's not just this. He he came off horrible in Bounty Gate. Horrible. Yeah. Never provided one piece of evidence to anyone about that. He's looked horrible time and time again about the player safety issue. There was a lockout under his watch already. Yep. This now. Like, what what has he done good for the league? Yeah, I, I. Where's his value? I couldn't tell you. He's a prick. Yeah, uh, he's an arrogant prick, and I'd love to see him. It almost feels fall like as hard as Ray Rice. It almost feels like, and maybe it's just because we're in Buffalo and we got this phenomenal news on the day after this terrible video came out. But it almost feels like it's already got washed under the rug, and I hope that's or swept under the rug. I hope that's not true. I hope. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a here thing. Okay. I think this is a huge thing still. I mean, this everywhere is else. guys like Deadspin, this is this is where they shine. Like they they were going back getting like Chris Mortensen's reports and tweets from back then and getting them now and stuff like that. And I don't think what they were trying to do is make Mort look bad, but they were trying to say that the NFL Misled these all guys. these reporters right, yeah. twice. Schefter now. was pissed too. Yeah, Schefter was really mad on the air. Yeah, I think it. Deitch said. So, I think it was Richard Deitch, buddy of the podcast, who said something along the lines of, "If any good came out of this, it's that Schefter looks human. Like he, he was not not happy. The NFL misled him, and it's terrible. It, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And, and uh, one thing that I've heard a few times since Chris Berman was very guilty of this last night is like trying to give any credit to the Ravens. They oh, deserve yeah. no credit. They only did this because they were they had no choice. Well, I said to you before we started recording today, I said Ray Rice is not in the league right now because a video came out, not because of what happened. No. And if Michael Vick had a video come out of him dr- killing dogs, he wouldn't be in the league right now either. It's just there's no video of that, at least none at the NFL, and, none that TMZ has leaked. And I mentioned to you earlier as well that, you know, Ray, Ray Rice didn't go to jail for this. No. Right? Initially, he was only suspended two games for this. Mm-hmm. And he's never really shown any remorse either. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how he would rebuild his reputation. It's such a hard thing. Uh, what could he do? I, I'm going to say this out front as a disclaimer. I don't sympathize with Ray Rice. But that said, of any active NFL players, like on my Facebook timeline, I probably liked more of his posts in the past than anybody because it was always about anti-bullying of all things. 
and just he always seemed like one of the good guys in the league. He was never in trouble for anything before this. But then you see the video, and we talked in the past about this. Like, why did they only give him two games? There must be stuff we don't know. So I was kind of laying out scenarios to, like, maybe she went nuts. She's trying to punch him, and he's just trying to get her off her. She hits her head, something like that. And not a good There was not an a good area situation. of uncertainty. Right. But, man, you see that video. It's, it's one insane. shot, and yeah. then... He goes right to the left jab to the nose. Like, I, there's just no excuse for that. And it made me. I was having this conversation with my wife. Like, is it one mistake a guy made? Is he is he more the the good Ray Rice? Like, that's anti-bullying and stuff. Or is this? I and my thought after watching the video is no, no, that was well. And Robin asked Howard this today. Do you think that's the only time he hit her? I have no idea. I have no idea either. But it's a lot harder for me to say. Yes, than it is to say no. Put it this way: It's hard for me to think he never did it before. If I ever, it's so gruesome. If I ever snapped and did that, and I, I never would. I would never. I mean, blasting my fiance and his now wife in the face would not be the first place I would go. Like, and that just seemed like his first. Up, oh, she's coming at me. Better blast her in the face. It's terrible. But uh, the bottom line if, is, if you snapped and made a mistake, like. I would be like hands on my head, like, Oh my God, what did I do? And he drags her out and just looks, it's, it's cold. It's, it's not good. And then I said, the worst thing he did is like, and you even said this leading into this is that he never came out. If it were me, I would be like, I made the worst mistake of my life. I snapped. I need to get counseling. I'm so happy. I'm so fortunate that she's sticking by me through this because I'm lucky that she's still there. I'd be doing all this stuff. Instead, he marches her out to a press conference where she apologized for her role in it. Uh, that's the stuff where it's like, okay, I guess that Ray Rice that I thought was one of the good guys before just can't be. He can't be. And the bottom line is he is suspended indefinitely by the league. His contract was terminated. Uh, the CFL is going to honor the indefinite suspension by the league. So really there's no options for football. I'm always, you know, I always say, like, I hate to see someone not be able to work because of a mistake, Mistake, but he's got to do something to to pay a price for that. There has to be some consequence. Sure. And it's not jail. No. It's not the relationship. Right. So what's left? Yeah, and... uh, And in the end, you know what? He's probably got enough money anyway. He still probably has more money than we're ever going to have. Sure. And, uh... So. He's. I mean, not gonna lose talk sleep. about it from us. X's and O's thing. He's old, so he's never. No team is going to take the risk of the bad PR for a thirty whatever year old Ray Rice. Now speaking of that, uh, Jed York of the Forty ers today said that the team is going to wait for due process to discipline Ray McDonald, which almost one hundred percent of the time I would say that's the right thing to do. Because in the United States, you're innocent until proven guilty, and sure. it should be across the board. But man, are they taking a risk? That's here. what I was going to say. Because if this, if some video emerges, or if right. anything happens, and this guy say plays six or eight or ten games, uh, and some, it's going to be, it's going to be worse. Yeah, I know these teams always say they do their own individual investigations, and this would almost lead me to believe that they've done some legwork, and they think that. 
they must think that he has some ground here. Now, his quote is, I would much rather take shots at my reputation than to put somebody down and judge them before an entire investigation has taken place. And I get that. Yeah, that's admirable, I, but you're in an I entertainment business. I usually respect that, but you know what? That's a huge, huge risk. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, yeah. What else do we have? Drug policy. That's the other thing. Yeah. The NFLPA and the NFL are working on trying to rework the drug policy, which is something they said they would do from the start. Mm-hmm. When they announced the new CBA, they said they were going to be at the front of you know, HGH testing. And, you know, that was signed in 2011. It's 2014. They're finally kind of getting around to uh, to figuring that out. The reason it's sort of news is because Mike Florio is the person who on Thursday before the game sort of broke the idea that if this deal is made, the changes to the marijuana and some of the other policies could mean that Josh Gordon's suspension would be eliminated. And the same with Wes Welker. The marijuana thing is crazy. Um, I have Josh Gordon in a couple fantasy leagues. I ended up picking him up and stashing him. Uh, so been dying all year to be able to outsmart people. I know. I know. Related thing. And then I dropped him like the day before this news came out, and then I way overpaid for him in in my own league. But anyway, the if you read about it, the the threshold the NFL has is it's parts per million, and it's like fifteen parts per million. is the NFL standards. The Olympic standards is 50. So it's more than triple that. Or no, the Olympic is like 150, which is 10 times that. An air traffic controller is 50. So the NFL players are held to a higher standard as far as safety or whatever goes than uh, an air traffic controller. And that's always that's why I thought he might actually get off on the it's secondhand smoke thing. Like if it's that low... Maybe, but he didn't, and now they're working on something different. So, uh, and what is the Wes Welker thing? It has to do with the fact that he used it in the off season, and it wasn't performance enhancing something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I think it, it, it's just a change to the policy, which would mean he wouldn't be suspended anymore going forward. The problem is that if they do this, every single player that has been lost money because of a suspension since the start of this CBA is going to have a claim for the money they lost because of suspension. They can't give games back that have already been played, right? obviously. But, you know, uh, think of a guy who missed time. Uh, I I can't think of one off the top of my head, but someone, let's say, who was suspended last year because of drugs. Josh Josh Gordon. Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He missed two games last year. Well, he could say that wouldn't have been a failed test last year, so you need to pay me for those as well. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle this. I still think... It's probably a long shot that we would see these suspensions, suspensions revoked. I would imagine it will be from this point forward. Well, the other thing is they keep throwing them around March 11th. I don't know the significance of that date, but that's when they consider this year's the league, league day, started. The league year or whatever. And Gordon said hit, at the latest his test was failed in February. So he wouldn't fall under that anyway. Right. Because so Welker probably has a better chance of getting his reduced than Josh Gordon does because Welker's happened, I guess, this league year, and his was in the offseason. I mean, his his might go to zero games. It sounds like, and he's already served one of them. So, you got anything else NFL wise? I don't. I, I mean, we talked earlier about how we're not going to go back and talk about all the games. Are there any games that seem significant enough? No. I guess I want to say the Seahawks look 
like the class of the league. Again. We'll talk a little bit about that during uh, pick four, real quick, because okay. this is the only week where we won't have like games we pick to go back on. Okay, gotcha. So we'll spend a few minutes to to discuss. Sounds good. That. No, I think that's all the NFL news. Though. All right. Second thing today, then uh, something that we've talked about for a long time on this show from the start of the story is Penn State and the sanctions that were placed upon them because of the uh, Sandusky scandal. Well. Maybe conveniently, maybe not. Right around when this Josh, uh, excuse me, Ray Rice stuff was hitting its peak yesterday, the NCAA announced that they lifted the ban uh, to Penn State for bowls. Yeah. So Penn State has paid their price, according to the NCAA, and deserves to be back. And uh, that's the end of the of the of the ban for postseason. They restored bowl eligibility immediately. Uh, they will go back to the full 85 scholarships starting uh, next season. And I got two trains of thought on this. One is I never thought the players there now should have to suffer yeah. for things that guys did in 1994. I totally agree. And I, I know the players, were, some of the players, were, or probably all of the players there, were given the option to leave if they wanted to. And I know some of them stayed on. I don't know how many. I, I didn't follow it that some closely after. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I never liked that in college your coach could be found guilty of recruiting violations and then just be like, yeah, I'll go to the NFL then. You know what I mean? And just bail and leave a the team currently there to, to pay for his misdoings. But yeah. yeah, I don't think anyone there necessarily Not is a single guilty. coach or administrator was a part of this. Not a single player. The only person left that's guilty is the university, and they should be fined monetarily for whatever role they had. Sure. doesn't make sense to punish the players. Yeah, I mean, anyone that I, I think turned a blind eye to, I think Paterno was the most guilty maybe of that, knowing that he had a coach that was on staff still. for what I mean, whatever. We don't have to rehash all of it, but he's gone. He's dead. Right. And there was a lot of talk yesterday that let's get the statue back out. Oh, come on. They might not rush that this year, but I guarantee that statue's going to be back up at some point. Well, it's going to make its way back out there. That is just that would be the shining beacon of insanity that is. And it's going to happen. Sports. I I know it's going to happen. I can see it standing already. Yeah, I mean that that's a disgusting – just rape allegations that go away. I'm not saying about Penn State, I'm saying college sports in in general, but just these mysterious just the way college sports are held and NFL sports are held. Ray Rice got a standing ovation in the preseason. Oh yeah, from the Baltimore sports are re- I, I well, part of that is because the fans get put in such a bad spot. Yeah, right? I mean, what yeah. are you going to do? You have to yeah, kind of support I, your guy in a I way. I don't know. And there's not a team out there that's, that's a tough one. Squeaky clean. That's a real tough one. I mean, maybe Notre Dame is this the squeaky clean team you can root for? But, I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're a Baltimore fan? Like, turn your back if it's Ray Rice that runs into the end zone? Well, I, I, you know, I mean, no, it's a right. tough spot. The standing ovation part was probably much. It's a bit much, You don't yeah. need to get behind your guy uh, blindly. And now they prob- they look pretty they bad They probably right regret now. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last thing, the music ended, but I did want to mention real quick. Uh, the U.S. Open ended the other day. And uh, when we get Richard Deitchin, we'll talk more about the battle that him and Rovell have had on Twitter over whether or not this is relevant or not. The uh, US Open period? Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah. Uh, Deitch is on the yes uh, <laughs> part of that argument. But um, Serena Williams won her third straight US Open, which was definitely a good way to end what was at least a bizarre season for her. Uh, of course. Yeah, the most, the most memorable thing she did. If you're not a tennis fan, 
and I'm not, I mean, I'll watch it when it's on, but I'm not someone that seeks out tennis majors or anything like that. But my, my Serena Williams memory from this year is her stumbling around the court. Right. But she won the finals over Carolyn Wozniacki, who's the second best player alive right, right now, probably. Yeah. It only took her 75 minutes, 6-3, 6-3. It's her 18th uh, major Grand Slam, which is that's a staggering it's pretty amount. pretty good. Uh, and I think someone tweeted, it's Steffi Graf or Serena Williams for greatest of all time, and that's the end of the conversation. Pick one. It's hmm. one or the other. And that's probably true. Uh, the only uh, player who's won more... Never Tolova, maybe? Is, uh, I think, Graf, who okay. had, um, let me see, I, the numbers are here in this article. And this is singles we're counting only, right? Singles, yeah. yeah. Venus is seven. Right. She's only lost, Serena's only lost four major finals, and two of them were to Venus. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, she's uh, way up there as the greatest of all time. And speaking of tennis greatest of all time, uh, it seemed like Roger Federer was going to win this thing. And then he got upset in the semifinals and uh, and didn't get it. Instead, uh, Marin Kilic won, which is notable for that one of the four guys or whatever didn't win, right? Because forever it's been either Federer wins or Djokovic wins or Nadal wins or Murray wins. But it wasn't one of them this time. 100 to 1. Long shot. All right, not being a tennis fan, I looked what? it up real quick. Uh, women's singles Grand Slam leaders are is Margaret Court. Is yeah, 24. 26 or something. Steffi Graf is 22. 22. Yeah. And then Helen Mills Moody, Wills Moody has 19. And then Serena is now tied with Navratilova and Chris Everett. Got it. Way up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, congratulations, I guess, to Serena and Marin. Marin Kilich, I think. Think I got that right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, that's the time. Where does he fall on the leaderboard? <laughs> First one ever, a hundred to one long shot. So that means you know what? If you put a hundred dollars, you walked away with ten thousand. Ten thousand. That's not a bad day at the no, uh, office. Not at all. All right, we're gonna take a break and come back with Jane Levy. Our first guest today is from Long Island, New York. She did her undergraduate studies at Bernard College before earning her master's degree at Columbia University. Uh, She has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Daily News. Her comic novel, Squeeze Play, was hailed by Entertainment Weekly as the best novel ever written about baseball. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Sandy Koufax, Lefty's Legacy, and The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. Today, she's making her sixth appearance on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the distinguished Jane Levy. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm cool, Steve. How are you? Oh, very excited to have you on. It's actually a great day today in Buffalo, New York, as uh, the residents... What, did you guys win or something? No, Well, no, that never happens. The citizens here were uh, uh, awoken to the news that the bills have been bought by the owner of the Sabres, uh, thus guaranteeing their future here. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been, I'm still in Cape Cod and um, spending most of my time welding. So um, I'm, I, I have a helmet on my head most of the day, and I, um, 
just um, haven't been paying attention. I apologize. No, that's okay. When I think of welding, I think of like a scene from the A-Team where Mr. T, like you can only really see his jewelry moving and he's like putting a big structure onto a car so they can blow. What are you welding? I don't know. Um, I'm making sculptures. Oh, okay. Mostly animals. I'm 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 not doing two by two yet, but I've got now. Um, let's see. I got a turkey, an alligator, a turtle, um, a dog, a big bird, uh, and one oh a bee. Uh-huh. Um, and I just take found metal objects and put them together. Yeah, my brother actually is taking a. He last semester took a sculpting class at Yale, and he told me today he's taking another one. And it, I guess it's the same thing. He he welds metal basically. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to do. I have new and profound respect for people who make bridges and put cars together. So is that like your main hobby? Yeah, it's sort of become my anti-writing mode. It's tactile. You know, it's dangerous. It's everything that writing isn't. What else do you do for fun? What else, what else did you do during the summer? Well, I got Lyme disease. That wasn't fun. Oh, no. Um, and um, I did some work on my new book, which is a Babe Ruth Babe book. Ruth, right, yeah. And um, I did a lot of, well, I had to stay out of the sun because of the antibiotics that you have to take for welding. I mean, for welding, great. <laughs> um, you can see where my head's at. The antibiotics you have to take for Lyme disease. Um, but when I was able to go outside, I like to swim distance in a in a um, clear crystalline uh, freshwater pond. How far can you swim? Uh, I can do about a mile. Oh, very nice. So not quite from Cuba to Florida just yet, but you're working up I to that. I am not, and it never will be <laughs> mistaken for Diana Nyad. <laughs> Got it. Uh, just that kind of stuff is just interesting to me. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I, I reached out to you today because I was thinking about you uh, on Sunday, I guess, when the Yankees were having their uh, ceremony for Derek Jeter because I know we've talked in, in the past about, you know, I think the first conversation we have kind of started with you telling me about how Mickey Mantle was your guy because I know the first time we had you on was while you were promoting The Last Boy. And I think we had this discussion maybe last time or another time about how Right now is a really interesting time for a lot of Yankee fans because their guy is kind of uh, is is wrapping up his career and and for the last two years it's it's maybe been the case you know maybe there's some people who their guy was Rivera and his career wrapped up last year and uh, and this year now with Jeter and I was thinking about you and wondering when you see the end uh, of an era f- for a, a Yankee like Derek Jeter. Uh, does it make you think back to to your guy, and, and what kind of feelings do you have? I guess is what I'm asking uh, for something like this. Wow, um, hadn't thought of it in that way. Um, I mean, I like Jeter. Um, I don't think he's Mickey Mantle, and I don't think he's the greatest Yankee ever. I don't think. I mean, I think that goes to either Babe Ruth or maybe Lou Gehrig. Um, I think he is a lovely lovely player, um, certainly clutch, um, certainly dignified, um, even as his skills have eroded. Um, I think, you know, a couple of things about him really interest me. Um, in, 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 he's sort of the, uh, the anti-mantle. Um, 
I mean, you think somebody asked me to write something about him the other day, and so I was watching um, video of him and that classically burnished way that he always approaches the batter's box. And, and I was thinking about how you watch a thousand guys do the same thing a thousand times, you know, come to, come to the plate, fling away a superfluous bat, dig in, you know, adjust the bill of the cap, um, your helmet, and, and face the pitcher. Well, Jeter has managed, you know, and, and after a while, all those guys kind of meld into a, an arch- archetypal at-bat, you know, a batter at-bat. But Jeter was always unmistakably different. His mannerisms and his comportment were always different. The way he would always dig that, you know, back foot into the box and he would move around, but that that back foot always stayed anchored. And that said something to me about how anchored he was in his position, in the lineup, in, in his body, um, in the Yankee dynasty, though it's a word I hate using. And then, you know, he would always tuck his bat under his, um, under his arm and he would fiddle with his cap with, uh, you know, um, tweak it a little bit with his right hand. And then often he would hold up his right hand, you know, toward the bat, uh, to the, toward the catcher or the ump. And I always wondered what that was about, whether it was about balance or it was just part of his kinetic emotional chain or whether it was a way of of basically asserting control over the moment because even for that fraction of a second, he's basically saying, hold up, wait, you know, I'm not quite ready. And it speaks to me to a particular kind of control that he has exerted um, over himself, over his body, over the lineup. Now, many people are criticizing that right now, um, saying he should have been moved down. Um, but also of the conversation about him, because um, he had, you know, I, I think I wrote in, in the Mantle book that he perfected the art of public speaking without saying anything at all. And some people thought I was being snarky, and maybe it was a bit snarky, but it was also admirable, um, or said with admiration, I, I mean to say, because it's hard to do that. <laughs> and uh, Ian O'Connor, um, who's, a, who's a friend, wrote a, wrote a book about Jeter a couple of years ago in, yeah, uh, in timing with, with his 3,000th hit. And somewhere deep in it, he has Jeter, somebody talking about uh, quoting Jeter as being absolutely aghast and astonished at uh, Alex Rodriguez's inability to control himself, what he says, and, you know, um, uh, to, to control the conversation. He, he, and he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, it's amazing that he, could, he doesn't understand. You know, you just answer the questions, but you don't say anything. And, um, you know, and Jeter has basically managed to do that. Uh, you can't, I mean, can you think of a, a memorable Derek Jeter quote? Not I one. can't. <laughs> and, yet, and yet I suspect... You know, and and maybe it's wishful thinking, um, but I suspect that there's actually a conversation you might want to have with a guy. I mean, why else would he be 
embarking on a starting a, a publication, uh, a publishing imprint in the Derek Jeter name. Um, it's 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 you know one of the profound ironies, and of course you know that he can do it is because he's Derek Jeter. You know, rest of publishing is going to hell in a handbasket. But Derek Jeter can start a, an, an imprint, and of course anybody will want to write for him. Um, but you know, considering that he's never said anything that anybody can remember, um, other than I always wanted to be a Yankee shortstop, um, you know, uh, it, it, that's an astonishing accomplishment, even without doing anything. Um, you know, and I suspect that he actually probably really has something to say. Um, and whether any of that will come out now that he doesn't have to comport himself so carefully, be interesting to see. You know, one thing that's always interested me kind of along those lines is how Jeter is sort of the master at existing in, in this 21st century world where, you know, there's there's camera phones everywhere and microphones everywhere and, and the intensity and the pressure and the spotlight is so bright now. And he's done it so masterfully. You know, we've heard stories about how if you go to Derek Jeter's house, you have to leave your cell phone in a basket at the door and, and things like that. And I wonder if you ever thought about Mickey Mantle and how his life would be perceived if he uh, played in Derek Jeter's era and maybe Derek Jeter played in, let's say we switched them. Did you ever think about how uh, Mantle might navigate New York in the 21st century? Yeah, I have thought about that because, um, and I've actually written about it because take the famous Copa incident, you know, Billy Martin's birthday at the Copacabana in May 1957, mm-hmm. which um, was a watershed event in a hilarious kind of way because suddenly, um, and largely because gossip columnists and city-side columnists were handling the story and not sports writers who would have been, you know, sworn to secrecy, um, it, it emerged that the Yankees had been in a, a fracas a brawl, you know, uh, um, a set to with some bowlers from an uh, uptown Manhattan bowling club, you know, or at, at a 2, 2 a.m. performance by Sammy Davis Jr. Um, and one of said bowlers had ended up um, unconscious on the floor of either the kitchen or a hallway outside the kitchen or the men's room, depending on who you believed. And the Yankee players, um, you know, swore of a vow of Omerta, and you know that that what really happened, I think, will go to the grave with Whitey and Yogi, who are the only two alive, I think, still who were there and who know it. But my point was, what if that had happened in an era of cell phones, um, and and somebody had recorded it? They wouldn't have been able to get away with saying, in Yogi's um, felicitous phrase. Nobody did nothing to nobody. Um, but in a funny way, particularly for Mickey Mantle, um, because he was so unable to exercise the kind of restraint and self-control that Jeter has shown, um, it might have been really good for him. It might have been really great if his flaws, and I'm not saying he was the culprit there, but um if his flaws, his demons, his behavior were recorded, he might have had to confront it um if had he been confronted that is with you know videographic um documentary evidence 
of drunkenness or boorishness, you know, maybe he would have had to deal with it. Maybe the camera would have acted in loco parentis because God knows nobody else did or could. That's a really interesting thought. I, I really didn't think of it that way. I was, you know, maybe it's the cynic in me that was thinking, well, oh, it would have been so bad for him and his reputation and all that. But I, I love the way the way you, you point out that, yeah, maybe it would have been a, a means for him to um, to confront it, as you said. That's a really interesting take. I was also thinking about we always hear we always hear about the Yankees uh, when they when they get a, a new player or a big player it's like he needs to have this moment to be like a real Yankee in quotes and it's sort of silly but uh, I think maybe at least in in my lifetime there isn't a player with more of those moments than Derek Jeter whether it's the home run as Mr. November or the Jeffrey Mayer thing or it's the going head first into the stands in the regular season game against the Red Sox, or obviously the flip play uh, against the A's. And I'm sure we can name three or four more, maybe. A home run and hit number 3,000. All those different things. And uh, is there one for you that when you when you think about Jeter and his legacy as a Yankee that, that resonates most or, or most defines him? Well, I, there are two answers to that. One is... Um, as I said before, it's not so much a moment, but it's the um, precision with which he repeated emotion and an approach to the plate, you know, so that it's 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 unique, it's idiosyncratic. You wouldn't mistake him at the plate for anyone else, you know, diving over uh, it, you know, and, and stopping himself from swinging at that out at an outside pitch, you know, um, his his back foot always anchored, you know, between pitches, even as he would swing his front left foot foot wide and then get ready to settle back in. So it's it's it, that's what sticks with me. And and strangely, um, and you know, I apologize because I don't remember exactly when this happened, but I remember when he got injured, sliding into third in in, in Toronto against right? Toronto. Yeah, that was on opening day. Yeah, yeah. and. That struck me as the first chink in the armor. Uh, I don't mean moral armor. I just mean, you know, that, that suddenly he was fallible. Um, and um, it was just sort of, mm, like everybody else. Right. I, I'm a, it's just a guess. But I'm going to say that was opening day 2003. But that's just a guess. Might have been. Yeah, right around there. But I, I remember that. Uh, I remember feeling the same way about that too. Like I just can't imagine this guy not being a part of that lineup and that team for this amount of time. It was just it was sort of a shock, sort of. Yes. Yeah. His absence was was um, you know um, his absence was a presence. Uh, one last thing about this, and then I, I want to ask you a few other things. I sort of think that maybe uh, the Yankees, who are now facing two seasons in a row without playoffs, uh, two years in a row saying goodbye to one of the biggest stars in the history of a storied franchise with Rivera and Jeter. Uh, sort of a, a bit of a crossroads uh, for them right now. Uh, when you look, f- have you thought about it all looking forward to the Yan- forward uh, for the Yankees and, and maybe like, it? let me put it this way, in Buffalo, uh, Jim Kelly has retired a long time ago. Uh, as Bill's quarterback, an eventual Hall of Famer, led them to four Super Bowls, and they've never been able to replace them. One of the reasons that the Yankees have won 27 
world championships is just because of the way they've went from, you know, Ruth's team to Gehrig's team to Mantle's team to... Wait a minute, you forgot DiMaggio's DiMaggio's team, team. absolutely. Uh, the way they've done that for so many decades, do you wonder if if it's going to be harder now? If, if, if the, the crossroads that the Yankees are at now, where do you see it going? Where do you want to take that? Take it any way you want. Well, I mean, I, I've thought about a lot, and I would love to have the opportunity to ask Brian Cashman about it. You know, you could see this coming. Mm-hmm. You have the core four, which, of course, you know, like nobody can imagine um, anymore whether at a time when you have four homegrown players who stay um, so intact for so long, but, um, you know, which was, which was lovely because it was so antithetical to um, the way the game is played now with free agency and da-da-da-da-da. Um, but, um, you know, I kept thinking, if I were general manager and you saw that these four guys were going to age at the same time, the same way, and that eventually they would have a stranglehold on the lineup and on, um, and on your cash flow, how, what, what would you have done? Well, how would you have broken it up earlier? I mean, God knows you weren't going to trade Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera. Right. But it became such a thing, this core four, that at some point it became um, an imperative. So, um, and, 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 you know, yes, he, they, you know, had it left and came back. Right. I suppose the one that, that they could have traded earlier uh, or, you know, capitalized on value would have been Posada um, had they, you know, decided to do that. But there, there, it, the, the fact of the foreness of it became made it harder ultimately, I think, to split it up. And I also think the dynamics of New York um, make it hard to do what um, Charrington did, you know, um, this year with, with the Red Sox. I mean, my take on these two losing teams this year is that the Red Sox, you know, are shameful. I mean, I'm get, I'll get, you know, blasted for this, but they have absolutely no reason to have been as bad as they were other than a complete failure of heart and having been, you know, so good that they just took a pass, basically. Right. The Yankees, however, have every right to be as bad as they are now, and yet are, well, it's ridiculous to think to make the playoffs, um, you know, at this juncture, and, and, and that storyline is just, I think, silly. Um, you know, they're playing above their heads. I mean, you know, that they're even stayed in contention as long as they have is astonishing. Um, you know, I thought Joe Girardi should have been manager of the year last year. Yeah, he can um, manage. There's no doubt. And you know, this yeah. is this, these have been two amazing performances by by him. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, he, the free agents that come on the market are generally speaking the you know they're the older guys who are past the time when you know uh, when they have the, they have the, those rights, um, and so they keep buying older guys. Um, uh, you know, and everybody else ends up making them look old and slow. Um, so, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what Cashman um, and the Steinbrenners come up with. God knows the luxury taxes in the rearview mirror. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, 
you know, Beltron would have been a great addition five years ago. Um, and uh, you always take a chance um, when you invest that much money in pitching. I assume that presumably Tanaka is going to come back and be as good as he was. But, um, you know, and, and who could explain Brian McCann other than maybe he's having a hard time adjusting to the American League. And, uh, you know, I mean, you would think that right field porch was made for him. Yeah. Um, uh, one th- so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where they go, except that I think you can say you're going to have Ellsbury and, and Gardner 1-2 in the batting order next year. Other than that, hard to know where they're going to be. One thing I always think about when, I, when I'm talking about the core four is I picture, like, Bernie Williams somewhere, like, waving his hand, like, hey, I was homegrown, what and I won me? four World yeah. Series here. You know, like, I always wonder why he gets left off. I know he didn't play quite as long as maybe the other guys, but... He was a homegrown guy who stayed there his whole career, won four championships there. I always feel bad for Bernie Williams getting left off of the court. For I like thing. Bernie Williams a lot. Yeah, I like I him really too. do. Uh, and this... I think he's under, under, underappreciated. Yeah, absolutely. The sportscasters are here with one of our all-time favorites, Jane Levy, uh, kind enough uh, to join us to talk about Derek Jeter. But I have to ask you about a couple other things before I let you go real quick. We, we talked last time you were on about how – I was reading on the internet about how uh, people were fed up with not being able to find an interview with you that didn't quickly deteriorate into some kind of discussion about women in sports and how someone had followed that up by saying what well, you should hear on the sportscasters. And I think I joke saying, you know, I hope that doesn't mean I'm just doing it wrong. Uh, and we got a laugh out of that. But with that in mind, I figured I have to ask you, especially today of all days, on your thoughts about Ray Rice and the way the whole Ray Rice issue was handled uh, by the NFL from your perspective. Let me see if I can say this as succinctly and delicately as possible. It's appalling <laughs> that Roger Goodell, you know, this, this seemingly worldly together guy, um, would somehow not understand um, without the benefit of the additional video showing uh, Ray Rice punching this woman upside the, f- the head, um, that two-game suspension was a ridiculous insult, and uh, both to the woman involved that, you know, and somehow the NFL seems to think, well, you know, gee, she forgave him, she married him anyway. I mean, does anybody in in the male sports hierarchy not understand the psychology of abuse and of victims who go back over and over and over again, not because they're at fault, but because that's part of the cycle of victimization? And to have an NFL player, one of those big, you know, burly, you know, guys, wailing off on a woman in an enclosed space in an elevator, you know, and dragging her inner body off of it. And anybody thinks, I mean, he should have been suspended for life from the beginning, mm-hmm. period. Yeah, I don't know how he avoided that. I don't know how he avoided jail. I can't believe that Roger Goodell thought it was okay to interview them together. I mean, as far as I know, the only time he spoke with her she was sitting right next to Ray Rice, which I don't know about. I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that that seems to be the violation of Rule One Hundred and One. You never interview the victim in front of her attacker. 
No, never. And and again, it betrays a shocking insensitivity and ignorance um, about the nature of victimization and abuse. And, you know, I don't, what I'm about to say does not, you know, follow, um, you know, as a, as a quid pro quo. I don't know that Ray Rice ever had roid rage, but roid rage is a thing that happens in the NFL. There are, they are big men, you know, playing a violent sport, and the fact of violence is, you know, that, that, that it wouldn't in some way cross over for some of them sometime. I mean, you know, how dumb do you have to be not to see that that's a potential issue and to deal with it? And for those who are, you know, uh, or uh, who are or did use um, steroids, well, roid rage is a real thing. I mean, I was on steroids once, and my doctor said to me, do you feel like an NFL greenback linebacker, you know, um, has just swallowed a handful of greenies and you want to beat the crap out of your husband and children? And I went, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So, you know, it's a real, it's a real culture of violence, and that there would be incidents of it off the field is hardly surprising. And so to have been as ignorant you know, head in the sand as these guys are about this issue is shocking, appalling. You know, I just got married a few weeks ago, and, I, you know, I don't have a daughter, but... I saw that on Facebook, by the way. <laughs> oh, Congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, I don't have a daughter, but maybe I will someday. And, you know, now I do have a wife, and I do have a mother uh, who I... I'm sort of a mama's boy. I'm okay with admitting that. And uh, it's just it's sort of offensive to me the way this has all been handled. And, and very rarely do I, am I the one who, who, who maybe says things like that. But I just wonder, and I wonder your opinion, you know, uh, Bounty Gate was a disaster. Uh, the way that concussions have been handled has been, has been pretty bad. Uh, now this, uh, a lockout. Does Roger... Goodell, in your mind, have any credibility as a commissioner of this league? Do you think that if you were one of the 32 owners uh, that you might think about, about, about maybe going in a different direction? I think they look at the bottom line. Yeah, and they got $1.2 million for one of their least valuable franchises today. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, you know, um, so no, I don't see they're going in any other way. Um and, you know, you can't argue with the television ratings and you can't argue with, um, you know, the, the contracts and the money it brings in. So I think, um, uh, you know, Roger, Roger Goodell may, to a certain portion of uh, the world, have lost um, some, some moral standing uh, over this. Um, and uh, certainly has with me, um, though, as, as you said, I <laughs> had some issues prior, uh, not just with him, but other previous NFL commissioners. Um, but um, I don't think it's going to sour anybody else on him uh, who's, you know, uh, paying his salary. You mentioned it earlier real briefly. What's the update on the Babe Ruth Project? Um the update on the Babe Ruth projects, I've signed the contract. The um, book is um, going to be titled The Big Fella, 
Babe Ruth and the Advent of Celebrity. And it's going to be, um, as have my other books, a non-traditional look at uh, an, an, an athletic baseball icon. Um, I'm particularly interested in the the synchronicity of his ascendance um, in the game and his really his revolutionizing the way the game is played at a moment in American history when um, the fields of public relations and marketing and the technology, uh, the mass, the mass um, media were just being developed so that he really was the first modern celebrity um, who had the ability to manipulate image and to manipulate um, uh, his own image. To he was certainly um, profited from uh, the you know the new uh, consumerism or consumptionism as it was called in 1925. Um, you know, and the, the need to sell products to. Um, uh, a public that you know was beginning to have disposable income, and he became a vehicle for those sales. So there you were selling Babe Ruth, and and he was selling products, and they were selling a, a way of life in America that you know we're all waiting to see what the new iPhone six is like, right? Imagine yeah. Babe Ruth p- pitching that one. Um, <laughs> so that's where I'm going with it. And anybody who has any. Um, Great untold Babe Ruth ideas, suggestions, photographs, stories. Please, please, please contact me um, through my website, which is janelevy.com. When is it due? Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Three years. Okay. This is the very last thing. So imagine this. Picture this. You uh, take out your smartphone or your, your laptop or your iPad or whatever you have. And you open up the Twitter app, and for the first time you write, you know, I was resistant, but Steve from the Sportscasters stayed on me, and I have this great new book project, and I want to be able to be reached, and this is another great vehicle, and that's maybe more than 160 characters, but maybe you split it up into a few tweets, and there you are out on Twitter, finally, and I can sort of be somewhat of a hero for... I was sort of a little bit of a hero for dragging uh, S.L. Price onto it, but I think that really it was the editors of Sports Illustrated maybe who had more of an influence, although I like to try to pretend that it was me because we had many discussions about it on the show. But wouldn't that be great for us in our in our thing we got going here? <laughs> I don't know. Scott can do it. Uh, I guess anybody can do it. Yeah. Um, but um, I'll, 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 I'll consider it. Okay, that's fair enough. I'll take uh, it under advisement. Thank you so much for doing this and, and for all the time. Uh, it's a sixth time in, and, and I'm so grateful that how kind you've been to me. And it's really, a, I'm not just saying this, and it's just such a, an honor for me, and I really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jane. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Talk and and Mazel Tov on the, on the marriage. I appreciate that. Take good care. Okay. Bye. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, we have let Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. (laughs) 
I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Jane Levy for being on the podcast today. It's amazing to think that we've had someone as distinguished and talented as her on so many times. Uh, but we always appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that. I don't know how much five on fantasy we're going to do during the actual season. It certainly won't be every week. I don't think we're ever going to get back to a point where we're giving starts and sits and things like that because I just don't think anyone cares. And I think that there's just so of much that of that there. now yeah. that there's, we're just offering nothing. But it's almost like uh, guys that if you want fantasy, you're probably going to want to listen to 45 minutes of it. And there's just better play. Go listen to Matthew Barry. He's yeah, Michael good. Fabiano and sure. Matthew Barry yeah. are great at it. So listen to them. Even, even I don't, I don't, I don't mean even as, as a sh- shot, but Damashek talks fantasy. Yeah, or Adam Rank. Uh, yeah, you know, ES, uh, NFL Network and ESPN have great yeah. fantasy teams out there. So I don't see the value in that here anymore. I think maybe there was some value at one point, but not anymore. But one thing I did want to make sure we did today was talk about the listener league. Uh, we had the listener league draft on what was it last, last week Wednesday? Wednesday. Yeah. And it was a it was a big success, I think, for the league. We had almost a hundred percent live drafting. Are the auto drafters playing? They that are. It seems good. like so far. Good. Although it's hard to tell the first week because nobody's hurt. You, no one's hurt right. or anything. But it seems like it. And if not, we're going to make sure we jump in right away because we do still have a few people who would like to play. Uh, but I wanted to thank everyone who who played with us. It's pretty cool. It was uh, fun. Yeah, everyone who's in it seems fun. Uh, they got us dragged into some new app. Uh, what's it called? Group me. Group me. I gotta figure out how on my phone to make one phone number not notify me of texts because it blows up on Sunday. <laughs> the group me. Yeah, they were they were going at it. I had to actually leave the group for a little while after the Saints game on Sunday because they were <laughs> they were they weren't chirping me, but it was just pissing me off. You know, like I wasn't in the mood right that second. Yeah. So I had to bail out of there for a minute. But it's nice to see that people are pumped about playing and are playing. And uh, you got off to the boss start with the with the first win and the most points in the league after one week, and uh, our, we got some super fans in it. Uh, we got some friends in it, and it's a nice little league. And we're gonna try to talk more about it this year and and get some of the participants in it on here once in a while uh, and try to do a little bit more with it. So uh, thanks to everyone in the listener league uh, for being a part of that. The other thing I wanted to do today is I wanted to ask you. Uh, what you do after the first week, what do you do with players like Larry Fitzgerald who didn't catch a pass? What do you do with, uh, maybe guys who play above expectations that first week? How much do you read in or not into the first week? Is it just simply assessing a buy house, buy high, sell low for each player like you would any other week? Or is there a little bit more patience that needs to go in because it's the first week? I mean, in a guy specifically like Larry Fitzgerald, and this isn't my analysis, but uh, some advanced statistics suggested that Michael Floyd had passed him last year, even though the yardage wasn't there. Just like downfield targets, things like that. So I wasn't. But for Michael Floyd to pass him doesn't mean that he wouldn't be fantasy. Well, no, right. Last night was strange. You wouldn't expect him to have one catch for twenty-two yards because Michael Floyd's better now. Sure. No, last night was strange and. Especially considering that, okay, you expect Michael Floyd to do it, but there was some other guy I've never heard of that had a real nice night last night too uh, at the receiver position. But I think that's a fluke. I mean, I'm not super high on Larry Fitzgerald, but if someone's going to sell him to you for pennies on the dollar, he'd probably be a pretty good buy-low target, especially the amount that Palmer looks – they're just going to throw. 
Right. So, I mean, if you had a guy like Larry Fitzgerald, you wouldn't rush to dish him. Oh, no. You'd be selling You'd be selling very low. And what about a guy like Kearns from Jacksonville, a guy who was not on anyone's radar, and he catches four passes for 110 yards and a touchdown? Do you have to go get that guy this week on the waiver wire? See, I, yeah, I don't. Uh, Let's say you got Marcus Lee. You drafted Marcus Lee in okay, the last then round. Okay, then maybe, maybe I Would do. you drop him to pick this guy up? Well, Lee's hurt, right? Isn't that why? Did he play? No, he played. He did play. Yeah, I don't think he's hurt. I just... And I mean, this guy only had four catches. He didn't have fourteen. That yeah, that's what I was gonna say. What he I tend had, to look for, in, he had six catches for sixty-two yards. Yeah, what I tend to look for in in this type of thing is, uh, and ESPN actually does a good job of showing these now, and maybe NFL.com does too. But on their scoreboard, I look at their targets. If he had like ten targets and caught four of them for a hundred yards, then then maybe it's a guy worth considering because uh, who is it there? Henny is is looking his way, but. I'm not going to be one to go out there because I think his day was very – I mean, the long touchdowns count too, but, I mean, if you've ever owned a guy like Mike Wallace or Deshaun Jackson, those guys can be maddening, but, I mean, they're established at least. This guy had one, had one good week. Yeah, and Wallace had a good week too to start. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he had seven catches too. He looked legit. It looked like they finally figured out maybe how to use him and maybe he was uh, a little underdrafted. But, yeah, I'm not buying I'm not buying Hearns yet. I'm not going to – we use free agent – auction dollars i'm not gonna go spend ten dollars on him or anything like that maybe if i really really needed a guy throw a buck at him and hope i won the tiebreaker or whatever but i'm not probably getting him this week i'd be pretty excited i'm most excited week one when a guy that i got like terrence west who i drafted in a few leagues under the thought that ben tate's not going to be able to hold up and it happens right away like that west gets 100 yards like that kind of thing excites me week one you know, I'm not going to go nuts about it and say I stole the draft by picking this guy just yet, but it's like, all right, well, maybe that line of thinking was pretty solid. Yeah, I. you talked earlier, like, or in the intro, you said, uh, how do you react to week one? And I I am prone, I think, to really overreacting. Uh, and it, I have Gordon on a bench, so I don't know what's going to happen there. I had Ray Rice on another team, so I had to drop him. So I, I do have to make some – I had uh, – Who's the Redskins tight end that's always like a sleeper Reed. he's hurt again already? Yep. Uh, I had him on a team, so I, I need a tight end in that league. But my thought, so those over uh, those aren't really overreaction. That's just kind of filling holes. But I do tend to kind of go nuts in the trade market. Now, where am I? I'm trying to look for my team here. Sorry. The in my in my one league, I have guys like Brandis, Brandon Cooks and Marcus Wheaton on my bench. Now this is where nice spot I don't in. know what to do because in front of them are Alshon Jeffrey, Randall Cobb, and Cordero Patterson. And assuming Jeffrey's healthy, are any are either of those guys ready to supplant them? And if not, can I really just sit those guys on my bench the whole season? I mean, right. they both look like they might be too good to be bench players, especially Brandon Cooks. Yeah, I I think what you what you've seen from Cooks, you're going to get that a lot. You asked me on text. Does Kenny Stills coming back take any of his value? And not really, because they just sort of play different parts of this part of the field. I don't think any passes that went his way aren't going to come because Kenny Stills is there. So this is where I'm going to. I think the passes that went to Morgan, okay, you know, would be the right. ones that would go to Stills. So anyway, I know it took me a while to get to this point, but this is where I'm going to end up overreacting. I have Cooks on my bench. I'm really excited about him. So right now I'm thinking, how can I dish Elshon Jeffrey? And it's going to be tough because he's a little banged up, but. 
I'm not dishing Cordero Patterson. Maybe I would dish Randall Cobb. So I'm already trying to unload one of these guys I picked like in the first or second round to improve somewhere else because I got cooks that I feel I can slot in in their in their place. Really, Gordon wouldn't be the guy that you would try to dish. I would think Josh Gordon. Get, yeah, I just don't think I can someone get to bite on that for him right now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I would get. I if you could get a number four receiver that's actually in the league or a number three, a guy that you could start, you wouldn't do it. That's the league I need tight end help in. Uh, so if you could get it, if you could get, let's say someone had, I don't know what guy, let's say someone, Greg had, Olson's a good, okay. Let's say someone had Greg Olson, a good name. He's he would give him to you for that. You wouldn't take that. Maybe I would, maybe I would in that league. Cause I really need tight end help. Um, and there's only like two guys or, like Olsen's like I I picked his name because he's like a guy that okay I can start this guy for the rest of the season and not worry about it but he's not at the level of a Gronkowski a Graham or a Julius Thomas so that's where that's where the level is to me and if if it's much below that then I might as well just pick a guy off the waivers you know like much below Olsen it's like okay right. I'll I'll just find a guy well. Jermaine Gresham might be that guy this week. Yeah, with uh, Eifert being hurt. In your league, I actually picked both, both. of them. Yeah, and say, so, hey, hopefully, so, and it worked out perfect. Yep. Uh, although, I feel bad for well, right. his elbow. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Fa- was, fantasy football makes gross. you a terrible person. It when does. You- that was gross. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Sal Capaccio. Our next guest is from Buffalo, New York, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. He is a sideline reporter for the Buffalo Bills Radio Network and the host of many different shows on WGR 550 in Buffalo, New York. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sal Capaccio. What's going on, Sal? Not much, guys. It's been a uh, crazy, I guess, weekend, really, when you think about everything with uh, the game and then all this news with the ownership, so been crazy, and I guess that's what we look for in this business. It's been wonderful, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, just a really happy day. I mean, we started this show off the top just about saying, you know, what a great day it is. Uh, if you live in Buffalo or born in Buffalo, it's just a great day for the city. And I guess I meant to check, but did you did you clear your drafts out and fire those uh, tweets out to um, to Dante <laughs> Whitner and the, the jerk from Miami yet, or are you still going to wait a bit? You know what? Uh, I felt better of it when the news came down, only because I felt that was not the time to grandstand. Today should be about Buffalo, not about uh, rubbing salt in anybody's wound or going after Buddy. I kind of took a shot at Whitner on um, on the radio, though, when I was hosting on WCR after the news came down, and I was kind of going through everything. In fact, both of them, and pretty much it's saying what, what the tweets would say, which is basically, you know, Omar Kelly wrote about, hey, Buffalo, enjoy your team while you have one. And then he wrote the words, drops the mic. Yeah, and he was so proud of it. Yeah, and then picks up foot and inserts it in mouth. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's one thing. And then Dante Whitner, he said, um, well, how, how does it, how do uh, Toronto Bills sound? Or uh, how do you like Toronto Bills? And um, oh, I know what he said. Can you say Toronto Bills? Yeah. And my response in today was, Dante, can you say Le'Veon Bell? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very nice. But, and what I was going to do on Twitter, and I still might, is just say, can you say Eddie Lacy and show the picture of Eddie Lacy completely trucking him last year in a game? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Hitner, right? Uh, but, uh, no, I mean, it, it felt good, I think, today. 
you know, and you mentioned about it being maybe 20 years of worrying and, and you know, having this in the back of your mind. But I just wonder, since – forget the last 19 years, but since Ralph died, like how – at the most worried, how actually worried were you that, that the team would leave in six years? Like did you think it was a 90% possibility, a 50, a 20? Like where were you in terms of your, your, your highest peak since Ralph died of being nervous about this? Um, I would say the, I never I never got to a point where I thought there was more of a chance of them moving than staying. I always felt there was more of a chance of them staying than moving. And that goes back to years ago when I had just heard that uh, some things have been told to me that, you know, hey, when everything's all said and done, you know, the right things are in place to keep this team here. But, you know, I, I think when you go through the process, I was never worried even, even when Ralph passed away, you start to have that worry and creep up in your mind because, Really what happened to me was, you know, thinking about Jim Kelly and his situation, and you thought, well, Kelly, I was told that, you know, Kelly was going to really have a, a major role in trying to secure the team here, and then when he had to go through what he said to go through, obviously he has bigger things he has to worry about in his life, and I think that was a little bit more worrisome for me as, hey, here's a guy that's kind of been pegged to help do this, and now obviously he has to deal with his own personal uh, issues and health, so where does that stand? I think then... When it came down to it, um, throughout this process, really, as uh, as Rogers became a part of the Tannenbaum Bon Jovi group, that was the only time I felt really uneasy because, you know, that guy and his family have a lot of money. They're worth about $7 billion. Now, I know it's not liquid like Terry Pagula, but I knew that Bon Jovi and Tannenbaum couldn't do it alone. But with Rogers, there was always that uneasiness that, hey, what if Rogers says, Heck with you guys, I'm going to go at it alone because he actually had the wherewithal to make it happen. I never was on the side of, I think, more that they'll move, but I was probably got to a point, I'd say, if you want to put a set percentage, you know, 65-35 or 70-30 was probably the, the lowest or the best I, I, I got as far as worrying about them leaving. You know, a big reason I wanted to have you on today, well, a couple reasons. One is I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and two, you know, most of the people who listen to this show actually don't live in Buffalo. Sometimes that disappoints me. Sometimes it, it sort of makes me proud about the show is that we've reached people from all over the country. And then other times are like, ah, but I do wish more people from Buffalo would listen. But I knew that I wanted someone other than me to put in perspective for those out-of-town listeners how perfect it is that Terry Pagula is actually the guy who bought this team. Like he's literally the most perfect person on earth. Can you put that into words? Can you explain maybe even a little bit better than I can or, or give more credibility to my words to people who aren't from here, just how great it is that that's the guy who bought them? Yeah, I think you're right because it's um, it's one thing to say, well, anybody who will at least keep the team here, and that's right to a point. But, you know, Tom Golisano bought the team. They wouldn't be leaving, but we wouldn't have the same euphoria and the same excitement as we do about Terry and Kim. I think Kim's role, by the way, shouldn't be understated here. In fact, a lot of things that I've heard are saying that she's really going to be the one that's going to be in control of the Bills, while Terry's going to be in control of the Sabres. Now, I don't know if that's how accurate that is, but I do believe she's going to have a major uh, part in what's going on with the Bills. That said, the reason why they are the perfect people is, look, they've made an emotional and financial investment in Buffalo like nobody in the history of the city has. The Harbor Center is the largest privately funded construction project ever in the city of Buffalo. That is all their money. That is what they're putting in to our waterfront and our canal side to help make it better. They are the ones that are really spearheading a lot of the new development going on 
downtown. They have kids. Um, that they obviously want to help for generations to come. This isn't about you know somebody buying the team and holding it for 10 years and selling it, or somebody buying the team and 25 years from now we worry what's going to happen upon you know their death. Of course, maybe something happens that you know their kids aren't involved, but they have kids and they want to keep this team here for generations to come. They want to have their kids have an opportunity to have this team. So there's a lot of things that make it why they are the perfect people to own this team. But above all, more than anything, I think it's just them. They're, they're, they're loyalty. Um, the kind of people they are, guys. You know, when, when Terry Pagula bought the Sabres, his loyalty really showed because he did not do anything as far as firing Darcy Regeer and Lindy Rock, and he said, you know, they're not going anywhere. And that loyalty was rewarded right away. They made a, a run uh, to make the playoffs that year. Right. And I know in sports, sometimes people can be loyal to a fault in sports. And I get that, but I'm an Italian, and you're not going to tell me loyalty is a bad thing in anything ever because I always view it as a good thing above all, and that's why. They're loyal to Buffalo, they're loyal to the city, and they want to make it work here, and they already have an emotional and financial investment here, and that's why they're the best owners for this. Were you as frustrated as I was last night when people like, I think his name is Steve Simmons, a writer from Toronto, and I've seen a couple other people say this, like, why are you so excited, Buffalo? You know, this guy... Has been a disaster as the owner of the Sabers. Like, was it as frustrating for you, people? Like, just looking at the bottom line results for the team on the ice and not acknowledging the great things he's done for the city, like the Harbor Center, acknowledging the great talent that they've built up in the minor leagues that are going to spearhead the Sabers in the future. Like, I was getting so angry last night on Twitter. I had to sort of go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I really get frustrated about that because, like you just said, they're not seeing the forest through the trees. Um, First of all, today, uh, the day that they're, you know, they're announced that they're buying the team, is not the day at all that I want to hear about where the Sabres are on the standings. It just isn't because it doesn't matter right now. Today is about, you know, going forward in Buffalo and having this organization here. And anybody who wants to take that view, to me, is just reaching for something to complain about or to basically um, have a reaction from people and scroll, if you will. And I think that's what those people are trying to do. Now, that said, I think you can be debated about how uh, – much of a disaster, quote-unquote, Terry Kapoor has been as owner of the Sabres. He made some mistakes when he came in. There's no doubt about that. He probably didn't pull the trigger quick enough to hire Darcy and Lindy because he had, he was so loyal. But I think he listened to a lot of people around him. He acted like a fan. He thought that opening a checkbook was really all it took to build a winner. And I think he learned that that isn't the case. And there's other ways you have to go about it. Now, that said, they hit the reset button. And they hit it a lot harder than anybody thought they would hit it. And they're rebuilding the team the right way. So as much as the team hasn't performed on the ice, I think they're rebuilding it the right way. So I don't view them as a disaster. I view them as somebody who made some mistakes, learned from those mistakes, and then said, we're going to just start over and do it the right way instead of trying to patchwork it and doing it, you know, half all the time and uh, not never get it the right way. So, yeah, it does frustrate me because those people just simply don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, so you can agree or disagree with this, but I, I know that uh, Pagula made a couple of mistakes, but those are almost mistakes he had to make. When he came in, he had to spend the money initially to to build some trust in the fan base in him. If he would have hit the reset button right away and that first season, they would have had the historically bad season that they did last year. I don't know that that would have worked right away because we were too close to – July 1st, 2007. We needed to know that this new owner was committed to spending money and making a run at a guy like Brad Richards. And sure, Brad Richards didn't work out, but you know what? 
we're going to try Villaleno. And yeah, that was a disaster of disasters, but I feel like it still was the right thing to do because he built some trust. And now when we say, yeah, we hit the reset button and it's going to be a little slim, but when we have that core together and when we're one or two players away, I know I have an owner who's going to make that final step into into really being contender. And when these guys that we spent all this time building up are due again, they're going to stay here. He's going to he's going to resign them. There's never going to be another July first, two thousand seven again around here. Great point. I haven't thought about it in those terms, and yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's one of those you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because. There were a lot of people criticizing him for the most he didn't make when he got here, and then the, the money he spent on certain people. But you're right, guys. I mean, if he does do that right away, I think that there's a lot of people jumping on him and saying, oh, look at this guy. He's coming in, and he thinks he's so uh, such a big shot. He's just another Jerry Jones who, you know, buys the Dallas Cowboys and fires Tom Landry right away, you know? And, and, and people would have probably taken shots at him that way. Well, it's almost a can't-win situation. So I agree with you. I think the, the showing the fans what he was willing to do as far as from the pocketbook when – Let's face it, we've lived with two different organizations that over the years many have questioned whether or not the people owning those organizations have been willing to do those things. He comes in right away, he's willing to do that. Now, that said, so yeah, I agree as a fan base. That said, he also spent a lot of money on the you know the arena and inside and the locker room. And, of course, again, here we go. People have to criticize him because you're making it too easy on players, too soft. Look, but those things matter to players. They matter to people when they come here to you know, try and recruit them as free agents or make trades. And we're starting to see the fruits of that now. You look at a guy like Josh Georges who picks the Sabres over the Maple Leafs. Who would have thought that would happen? Brian Gianta says, I'm coming to Buffalo. I want to be there. And tells his buddy, why don't you come with me? We're starting to see that a little bit. And I see that, I say that part of the reason of that is a lot of the changes that he made inside the building and with the, the, not just the personnel and things like that, but obviously, you know, the um, – infrastructure of how the, what the team has, the facilities and things like that. So that's not those matter. The sports guests are here with uh, Sal Capaccio. He's at Sal Sports on Twitter. And we've talked about what a great day it is for Buffalo. Uh, you did a great job on the radio today, getting a little choked up talking about your son and what having the team here going forward will mean for you and your relationship with your son. And uh, we've mentioned uh, before you came on, Don and I were talking about uh, Jim Kelly and the great news he had, and what a great day it's going to be at the stadium this weekend, the first home game since Ralph passed away, the first home game with the new owner, the Jim Kelly news, and the huge win uh, in game one against Chicago. It was also the first game uh, that with you as a, well, the first regular season game with you as a sideline reporter. Tell me a little bit about that gig and uh, what you're looking forward to most about doing it. Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's a thrill and an honor, obviously. Um, when they decided to, uh, you know, expand the coverage and you know, have both Joe Biscilli and I be a part of what's going on, and Joe is still a part of the coverage. He's in the press box, and I'm down the field now. And they decided to, you know, expand that and expand my role. Obviously, I was really thrilled, and it wouldn't happen, I can tell you, without the uh, support of John Murphy and Mark Kelso, who um, I really love doing the broadcast with, and I, I think that uh, they have such a great chemistry on air, and I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of them. But the most exciting part is, for me, as a football guy, you know, I... I I grew up playing the sport, as you know, and I coached the sport for 10 years down in Florida, which is a hotbed of high school football, and really, you know, cut my teeth learning about the sport there at a, at a level that I think that um, I never would have been able to, and I'm so appreciative for. But I'm a competitor, too, guys, and, you know, that's, uh, I kind of joked my first time on air at the first game of the preseason. I said, this is my drug of choice. You know, some people, they, their drug of choice is something else, minus football, being on the field and being down there, being in an environment like that. Before I was a sideline reporter, 
rather than the press box only, I used to go down on the field before every game and just simply walk around to soak in the atmosphere. So, you know, as far as the gig itself, yeah, I mean, I have a job to do down there. I have to observe what's going on. But, man, I'll tell you, there's nothing like being on a football field. And when that national anthem is playing and your juices get pulled, and you feel like, I almost, I feel like I'm going to go to battle with the Bills. I really do. It kind of feels like that for me. It feels like I'm coaching again or I'm playing again. And, oh, man, it, it, it's, uh, my blood gets boiling and my, my adrenaline gets pumping. And it's an unbelievable feeling for the next three hours. How do you how do you juggle that? As a guy in your position, uh, you're also not shy about your Bills fandom. And we talked a little bit leading up to this interview on some segments we recorded ahead of time about how sometimes the word fan and reporter, it's almost like seen as a negative. But our point of view is kind of like, no, it's, it's a good thing. It lets you know who we are and where we're coming from when we're talking about sports or the Bills or, in Steve's case, the Saints. Where do you stand? Have you faced criticism for being a fan? Sure, yeah. I think, um, first of all, I think people have to differentiate between host and reporter. Um, let's take away my sideline job for a minute. Normally I'm just a host. That's what I am. I'm a sports talk show host. Um, you guys are sports show hosts. You're, you, you host your podcast. You're a sports talk show host. I think it's fine for a sports talk show host to be a fan because that's what you are. You're passionate about what you talk about. And if someone's going to tune into you to hear you talk about something, they want to know that you're just as passionate about what you're talking about as they are. I think you connect to the listener that way. And I'll give you an example and it's right in front of everybody every morning, and it's Mike Greenberg from Mike and Mike. And he makes no no bones about it. He's a New York Jets fan. Yeah. I think that's great. It's awesome because it's a part of his show. People, you know, they tweet him stuff, and they get out of his case when they lose, and when they win or they lose, he talks about him, and he's able to relate to a lot of people, and people, now that, that's his identity, and that's pretty cool for him. So I don't mind doing that. Now, I'm in Buffalo. I do that. I go on the air. I say, I want this team to win. I think fans respect that because they understand that I'm in the same boat as them. So when the team wins on Monday morning or the team loses on Monday morning or Sunday night and when I'm on the air, they can listen to me and know that I'm feeling the same thing they're feeling and we're all going through this together and we can talk about it. Now, when you become a reporter, you know, yeah, I think it's a little different. Now, I am the sideline reporter. I get that. But I'm part of the Bills radio network. I have a vested interest in hoping this team wins. I want them to win. Of course I do. I mean, I'm part of what's going on on the field as far as the Buffalo Bills are concerned. The trick is, and how you juggle it, I think, is the person has to trump the concept. And what I mean by that is the person has to be, have the ability to do that and have the credibility with the fans that when something goes wrong, they are able to criticize. They are able to say, hey, that was a bad pass by E.J. Manuel or, you know, be okay with printing something in, uh, online or talking on the radio about a negative storyline. Hey, Doug Morrell and the front office are fighting. That's what a reporter does. And it's okay to be a fan and report on bad things or even criticize as long as it's warranted. I've had conversations with people in the Bills front office about this. And I'll tell you the one thing they always tell me. As long as you're fair. As long as anybody's fair. That's, that's, that's all we really ever want. And I think that's a, that's a fair approach even from the organization to say, and that's what I try to do. I just try to be fair. I'm a voice for the fan, but I try to be a fair voice and a reasonable person. I was wondering about the job itself. Is what when you when you're out there, uh, maybe last Sunday or during the preseason, and, and this Sunday, when when you get ready for the game, what are your goals? What is it you want to contribute to the broadcast? What is it specifically that you're trying to contribute to make your role valuable? That's a 
great question. Um, we go over this all the time, actually. Murph always says to me, just remember, you're the third set of eyes. You are the eyes that we can't see. And there's a few things that happened in the first preseason game that I was down there for that I felt to myself, okay, well, I want to talk about this, but I don't know if this is something too small that they don't want. So we used it, and then they're like, no, that's the stuff we're looking for. For example, one of them was Mike Williams catches the ball on the sideline, and he kind of tiptoes, and he makes a really nice catch. And then right after that, about five minutes later, there were two wide receivers, uh, Gurley and Holly, on the sidelines for the Bills, who were basically, like, imitating him, like, oh, my God, what a catch. And they were, they were doing what he did, but on the sidelines, imitating him. And I, I said this on the air, and I said, hey, these guys are on the sidelines. They're so impressed with their teammate. This is what they're doing. And I thought to myself, you know, is that really valuable to the broadcast? Well, afterwards, Murph says to me, Sal, that's exactly what we're looking for because fans can't see that. They're not on the bench. They don't know that. We want that. We want that extra set of eyes. We want you to tell us about, and what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to really find, like, when Fred Jackson runs out into the huddle against the Bears, he's not even in the part of the offense, guys. There's a timeout. He runs out in the field, talks to the offense in the huddle, and gets back. That's something I want to tell the fans because they didn't see that on TV. They didn't hear Murph talk about it on the radio, and they need to know what it's like on the Bill sideline right now as they're involved in a tight game in the fourth quarter. So what I'm trying to bring is just that extra set of eyes that's observing, not analyzing. Mark Kelso's the analyst. I'm the observer who's down on the field. Do you think that is there anyone that you have watched before, whether it be on television or on radio, obviously you didn't watch radio, you heard them on radio, that you think has really done this? Uh, the best? Is there someone that I don't want to say that you're trying to emulate, but there is there a person or persons that have done this you think really well that you would like to, that, I don't want to say even, I don't want to be too corny about the question, but I think you know what I'm getting at. I do. I'll give you that too. One local, one national and the local one is Paul Peck. He is now the uh, voice of UB football um, on our sister station ESPN 1520. He was the Bill sideline reporter uh, for years on the Bill's radio network with Murphy Kelso and I gotta tell you, the um, the minute I got the gig, the first call I made was to uh, Paul Peck. And I said, hey, Paul, you know, tell me some tips. What do you think? Well, you're the best that I've heard of this, and you do this the right way. And he gave me some pointers about things that, to look out for, what to do, what not to do. And I think Paul does a really good job because he understands, he captures the essence of what's going on in the field. And now he's a play-by-play guy for UB, so, you know, good for him. And the national one, I think it's kind of interesting because she's been involved in a bit of a controversy over this, is Pam Oliver. I think Pam Oliver is the best in the business. And she got demoted because they promoted Aaron Andrews to the first spot. Um, this is not a knock on Aaron Andrews because I think she does a fine job, but I just think Pam Oliver's better. And every time I watch her, she's a professional. She understands what her role is on the sidelines. She gives you very good facts. I think she does great interviews as well, uh, halftime, after the game, or whatever. And um, I think, in fact, guys, I'll say that a lot of, I know there are a lot of female sideline reporters on TV, but it just seems to me that some of the better ones I've actually watched are females. I think Bonnie Bernstein or, um, Susie Colbert, excuse me, Susie Colbert, when she was on the sidelines, was one of the best that I've really ever seen do this. So um, I would say those two are at the uh, top of the national list of all practical. Yeah, and, I, you know, you mentioned uh, Pam was, was demoted. Remember, Fox put out a release. They actually promoted her. Remember, that's how they, how they spun that. So I don't think anyone believes it. Yeah, exactly. It. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's just a shame for her, and yeah. we all know why that happened. And, yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah I'm not trying to take a shot at Aaron Andrews. I think she's, she's okay at her job, but Pam Oliver's better, and I saw no reason that Pam Oliver should have been demoted from that spot. Absolutely. Uh, again, it's the Sportscaster CEO with 
Sal Capaccio, at Sal Sports on Twitter. Uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, it's nice enough to join us on what is uh, a busy but really exciting day for Buffalo. Yeah, I'm surprised they even let you leave, Sal. It seems like when they have days like this, you you do like three, four shows there. Well, what's funny is about today, yeah, I, what's funny is last night, when this all started, you know, guys, we have uh, overnight on, uh, what would that be, Monday night, um, <laughs> you know, Ke- uh, Kelly Pagula tweets all those exclamation points, right, and then all I of a sudden, Tim, yeah, Tim Graham, who I know has been on your show, has said, yep. said, oh, well, you know, this is happening, it's going to be cool, and the dots started connecting, and even my wife even said, you know, maybe your boss might watch you on the air tomorrow, and I said, <laughs> yeah, he might, I'm not sure, but so what's interesting was, I had to go in there today anyway, this morning to just do some other business. I go in and I said to my boss, do you want me on the air at noon? And he just didn't even hesitate. He said, absolutely, let's go. Boom, you're on. And, I mean, this is how it works in this business sometimes. You're like a doctor on call. You never know when sports news is going to break. And I'm glad. I'm really, really, really glad that I was, and I am, many times, especially today, the person that gets to do that for, uh, for Buffalo sports fans. Well, I was going to actually ask you, maybe we can break some news here. Is there like a special red cell phone there or like a bat signal in the backyard <laughs> at WGR? Like, is there some way? Where uh, they- yeah, it is the bat signal. They throw, they throw it up, absolutely. It's, um, it just circles around the Elmwood Village West Side area. You know, that's where I live uh-huh. uh, in Buffalo. And um, once I see that, I know that it's actually it's, it's a little bit smoky and things like that. It starts to get a little foggy. But, uh, no, guys, it's, it's, I have to be on call and, you know, John, I have a nine-month-old son at home, and I don't want to leave him, but all, this all starts, let me just say, it starts with my wife. She is the, the biggest support I have, and she understands the job I have. She understands that at any moment I could be leaving to go because something happened in sports. I tell her all the time, I can't control when the Bills or Sabres make a trade or fire somebody. So I have to be ready to act when that happens. And then on top of that, here we have this nine-month-old son, and... You know, when the Bills and the WTR on the Bills approached me about the sideline gig, you know, I had to go to my wife and say, are you okay with me leaving eight weekends out of the year? And, you know, her, her, her response was, are you crazy? Of course you should do this. If you don't do this, I'll be mad. I'll do it for you. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can't beat having a good wife. I'm uh, about two weeks into my marriage, three weeks into my marriage. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, Sal, uh, we wanted to thank you, too, before we let you go for that. 30 seconds or so when we were internet famous for, for making some time on WGR for us to share our story. We really appreciate that. Even though I, the one mistake I made when I was on with you is that I never mentioned Don, and I've regretted <laughs> it ever since. He always, tells, he always tells me not to worry about it, but I'm like, oh, that's a bad, bad job. You're a good partner for not being mad. But we wanted to thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today on what, like I said, I know is a busy day. So thank you very much. No, no, thank you guys. You do a great job. I know uh, Richard Knight gives you guys a lot of love, and uh, that's that's a really, really cool thing that you guys are uh, part of what you know he tweets out or writes about sometimes. And I know you started the whole uh, best moment of your life pictures and things like that. So you guys are doing a great job, and uh, it's fun. You know, this is a, a cool thing. We can have the internet. We can all enjoy in sports casting and podcasting and all this kind of stuff. I'm really glad that uh, we were able to do this finally. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll get you on again soon. Uh, Enjoy the new okay. gig. It's... Thanks, guys. Anytime. All right. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Jane Levy and Sal Capaccio for being on the show today. An exciting day in Buffalo, New York. I want to remind you, you can find our podcasts at www.sports-casters.com. 
at sports underscore on Twitter. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. If you get a chance, check out our show from last week. It's a football preview issue <laughs> edition uh, featuring Trey Wingo, Stuart Mandel, and Michael Fabiano. Uh, this is something we talked about was that how do we fit the games into this podcast? And what we thought we'd do is bring back pick four, uh, which is something we did for a while, but Don wanted to quit because he could never pick anything <laughs> right. So it's true. We got rid of pick four. And what we're going to do. I is do think, to be fair, it makes more sense during the football season. Makes way more sense. We were picking baseball season. games. We had like pitcher starters. It of, became a stretch at times. Yeah. To, to include. And I don't think anyone, no one was calling us on it. Nobody cared. Right. Right. Well, we're going to guess that maybe you care a little bit about football. And if not, we'll just say, well, listen, everyone picks football games. <laughs> sure. So, you know, if we're doing it wrong, everyone's doing it wrong. So <laughs> right. that's our defense and we're stick to it. Uh, what we're going to do most of the time to start this segment is go back on our picks and tell you how we did. That isn't there this week. So did you want to talk about anything from last week at all before we move on to next week? Seattle looks really good. I think I already kind of said that in the open. They look. Pretty dominant, uh, very talented team. They look great in that game. The home team always looks good in that That's game. That's true, but that doesn't. They take don't want to overreact from too what much. They are. They're yeah. really good. Um, the Bills are going to be better. I never thought they were as bad as they were in the preseason. I wasn't too worried about it. I know it's cliche, maybe a little bit, and it's not something that like I kind of like analytics, and it's not something that analytics can back up, but. EJ Manuel kind of looks like a gamer. You know what I mean? Like, he's just a guy that's going to win ugly a lot. Uh, and that's kind of how... I mean, he actually wasn't even that ugly in the Chicago game. He was pretty good. He had one bad pass. I mean, he wasn't accurate, but he had one bad decision, I should say. But I think the Bills are going to be better than people think. I did pick them in the over uh, last week. but uh, The Saints game really wasn't that big of a surprise to me. It was really almost exactly what the game was last season between the two teams on opening day. I mean, when the Saints and the Falcons are basically at full strength to start a season and playing each other, it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of points. I was disappointed with the way the Saints' defense played. The Colston turnover didn't bother me. He just never got a chance to secure the ball. The guy made a really good play. He was trying to secure it. He didn't. The Breeze interception in the red zone bothered me more because – Drew Brees has to know better than to try to force that ball. He does that once or twice a year. It he seems does, like. yeah. And uh, and the thing that bothered me the most is up twenty to seven with twenty seconds left. The Falcons got the ball at the twenty and got a field goal. Yeah. And that field goal was a huge difference in the game. If the defense isn't better than that, uh, the Saints are in trouble. But that's a uh, the Falcons have a lot of really talented offensive players, and uh, you know in the end if the Falcons and the Saints are the best teams in the NFC South, and I think they are, neither team can really say they did anything all that much better than the other one. I would expect to probably beat them by a little bit in the game at home, and then it's going to come down to the schedule. So I was bummed out that we lost. It sucks. It seems like we just can't find a way to win those close ones on the road, uh, the playoff game against Philadelphia withstanding. Mm. Uh, we've had a couple of real close ones. You know, in New England last year, and Carolina last year, and this game was a lot like that. We just couldn't get that last stop. Yeah, I was going to ask you two questions about that game. One, I uh, I texted you at some point, go, what happened to the Saints' offense? Like, it looked like they were just going to roll all over it, and then it had nothing to do. With I looked them. at the play by play. Yeah, they didn't get the ball in that span. They had the ball twice, I think. 
And it well, was like in a quarter and a half, they had two drives. It was it, 20 to 7, and then the next time they had the ball, it was 20 to 17. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so there's not a lot you can do about right. that. Yeah. From the, someone just watching like the score highlights, it's like, wow, every time I look over there, the Saints are scoring at will, and then nothing, and then it's a tight game all of a sudden. And but, then when yeah, they I started at, getting the ball again, they started scoring yeah, at will again. I looked the Falcons at the, never really stopped them. Yeah, I looked at the drive chart, and it was just the defense couldn't get Atlanta off the field. And the other question I was going to answer that you or ask that you actually kind of answered, it's opposite of how I thought is I was going to say I didn't believe in Atlanta still I don't think they're that good I just thought maybe they had a good day but I mean you watch the whole game maybe they're better than well I you know that's a huge game for them that's a game that that you can't well, right home can't game against a division that. rival right it's a home it's a home opener against your number one rival with your team at full strength well that's kind of what I was gonna that's kind of yeah, what I was getting I'm not at is, sold on them okay I'm just saying if they're our biggest competition we took their absolute best shot and still probably should have won. Yeah, that's fair. You know, so I'm not going to overreact to it. I guess the other thing I would ask you from that week is uh, I said in the preseason or whatever we were calling it, the preview show, that that might be the toughest division in football. And it's not. You don't think so? No, I don't think Tampa Bay is any good. Okay, that's true. But what I was going to say is... I don't think is, Carolina's that good either. You don't, because that was going to be my next question. Is I mean, their the, defense looks like they might be really, really good. The defense is good. And they won a game with a backup quarterback in. I mean, it, the, I'm trying to find their opponent. I know it was It wasn't. was Tampa. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, and Tampa was really poor in the game. Yeah, and I don't... That was one I never bought, but if you look back, uh, read other preseason articles, a lot of people thought Tampa was going to take a jump. Yeah, and I don't I, I don't know why. That division is so tough other than them. I don't know where they had room to move up. But I don't buy that quarterback at all. Newton or? No. Anderson in there McCowan. Oh, Tampa. Jeez, yeah. I'm getting crossed up. Yeah. Uh, I think that's all I had from last week. All right, let's move on. This is the way we're going to do it. We're going to pick a national game. So Don and I will each pick one of the three Thursday, Saturday, and or Thursday, Sunday, Sunday and Monday, Monday night, night games. games. Uh, we're each going to pick our own team's game. So I'll pick the Saints game every week. I'll pick the Bills game every week. Uh, we'll be able to pick any other game, sort of like a wild card, and then we'll pick a game of the week and pick that. Sounds so let's good. start with the game of the week. We pick the Ravens, a minus two and a half versus the Steelers. That is the Thursday night game, eight twenty-five on CBS. We'll usually try to avoid the night game as a game of the week, but the three night games were the three best games Clearly, this week, yeah. so we had to pick one. We picked the one with the closest spread. It's Ravens minus two and a half. Uh, I'm going to take the Ravens minus two and a half, maybe just because again, it's it's a situation where that game is so huge for them. And sometimes when a team gets has a week as bad as they did, mm-hmm. they rally around that. And maybe this locker room is going to rally around the Ray Rice stuff. Uh, I'll take a chance and I'll say the Ravens will win a close one over the Steelers at home. Uh, I, I'm basing this. I, I think they're pretty similar teams. I think if they played ten times this year, they'd basically split them. Uh, the Ravens are at home, and I think they lost last week to a much, much better opponent than the Steelers. Kind of squeaked out a victory over. I mean, the Steelers' defense to give up 27 to Cleveland without Josh Gordon, without Johnny Manziel. If you think he's better than Hoyer, without Ben Tate most of the game. Yeah, I mean that, that's a ton of points to give up. And the Ravens' offense didn't look any good last week either, but they played a really good Cincinnati defense. They're home, and the maybe uh, rally around hardship thing that you said. So I'll take them minus two and a half at home. That seems pretty nice. Uh, for my national game, I was really impressed 
by the 49ers. They were another team that everyone said is going to be the regression team, and they still might be. But right now, they look really good, and Kaepernick look really good. And sure, the Cowboys look bad and help them, but you know what? The Bears look bad, too. And the 49ers are opening a new stadium. It's the first game ever at Levi Field there. It's at home at night on a Sunday. I love them even laying the 7, so I'm going to take the 49ers over the Bears minus 7. Yeah, I don't want to keep doing this, but I don't know what to think of the Eagles after giving up 17 and then dominating. Uh, The Colts played an okay game. I mean, it was all coming from behind. But like you said, if the Bears feel at all like their reporter, who I, I think was a little bit overboard in saying that we lost to the Bills, kill me now or whatever, I, I think that's just a matter of thinking the Bills are the worst team of the past 19 years or whatever it is. So that's a little overblown. I've, I've said a few times how I think the Bills are better than people think. But if the Bears feel like that at all, then they're going and meeting the wrong opponent on the opposite well yeah on the opposite coast yeah, so trip. i i don't think they match up well against the bears at all and i said on oh, i think it was going to say twitter but i think it was actually our group me thing that i think jay cutler i don't know what the stat is but he's going to have like more 300 350 yard games that he ends up losing than any quarterback cuz he's just prone to just goofy decisions so I'm going to actually stick with you here again, and I'm going to take the 49ers minus 7. All right, I'm lucky enough to be able to go to the Saints game this week, and I'm really excited. It's in Cleveland, just three hours away from Buffalo. The first lady of the sportscasters and I are going to go up Saturday night. We're going to have some uh, Mongolian barbecue in Cleveland there, yeah. uh, stay the night in the hotel, and then go over to the game, get there early, take some pictures of the guys as they kind of warm up and stuff. And uh I fully expect the Saints to play a really great game on Sunday. They're a much better team than the Browns. Uh, This isn't uh, the kind of road game that usually trips them up. It shouldn't be uh, a bad weather day. It's actually supposed to be like 65 and sunny. And uh, I just don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to win this game by a touchdown. Uh, It's at 6.5 now, and I'll take the Saints minus 6.5 against the Browns. I think that this is a week where the Browns are going to be like, man, I wish the Saints would have won that game in overtime. Yeah, I was going to say... uh... I'm not picking this game. That's kind of this is your game to pick. But I've, we read scorecasting in the past, and they talk about how there's no statistical evidence to prove that there's trap games. But I wonder if there is a thing to teams, good teams coming off losses, because well, the Patriots, New England doesn't it, yeah. right. Yeah, they don't. And this is not a week I would want to face the Saints. And like we used to do bold predictions, this is one where I would say like they're going to win by like double or triple the the line there. Um, but my job is to pick the Bills game this week. And look, with this news, if you can rally around bad news maybe in the Ravens game, there's no reason to think the Bills can't. That building for a non-playoff, this will be the most charged that building has been in a long time. Uh, it's bad luck for the Dolphins to be coming there in this day. Yeah, they, they won a game they probably they definitely weren't expected to. Uh, I didn't see one national media member pick them. They actually kind of glossed over it like, on podcasts, when they're picking games, they're like, okay, no no one's taking the Bills here. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, they won a game they weren't supposed to. Jim Kelly gets a bill of health. I bet he'll be there. He'll probably Sunday. be there. Uh, this is you've, We've talked a few times about it. It's the first game back in the stadium since Ralph passed, and now there's a new owner. And the line right now is Miami minus one. Uh, the Bills can't lose this game. 
Uh, I know they're the Bills, and everything in me is still going to be nervous that they're going to go win a game they're not supposed to, maybe lose one that they probably should win. And that might happen at some point this year. But this shouldn't be probably the game. Probably not now. Yeah. Uh, give me the Bills plus one all day in this game. Uh, it, sh- it should be crazy, the atmosphere there. Uh, the Patriots, we talked about it a second ago, have made a, a living coming back in the week after a loss. And the Vikings had a great opening game, I think much better than anyone expected. And it, it might be one of these situations where, you know what, to start off on the road at St. Louis and then play the Patriots, we can split that, we're good with that. And I just don't see the Patriots losing. And because the Patriots lost and the Vikings won, I think I got it at a deal at minus 3.5. So I'll leave the 3.5 and, and take the Patriots, and I feel really good about that one. Yeah, uh I'm torn between a couple of games here. I'm just going to take, uh, you know, I'll take one that maybe is more of a risk here. I think the Redskins might be really bad. Uh, and they're right now a five and a half point favorite. I'm not sure they should be a five and a half point favorite over anyone. I know it's the lowly Jags, and maybe that's what the lines makers are thinking, that people are going to think it's the same old lowly Jags. Give me the Jags plus five and a half. I know they're on the road. I just, I. I think the Redskins might be in a lot of trouble. The other game I was thinking of was Seattle over the Chargers. Seattle's only laying six. I like your pick there. Yeah, but I'll, give me the Jags. I'm, uh, you're probably that's probably the first time I've ever said that in however many seasons, four seasons of the podcast. Give me the Jags, but I'll take the Jags plus the points. 